Amen. Please turn your attention to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. We're continuing our series this fall on the Lord's Prayer, and so I'm going to read Jesus' own words first, and then we're going to reflect on them together. Here's Jesus teaching his disciples. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you and before your word. We ask that you would speak a word in season through your word and through your spirit and grant that we might have open ears and receptive hearts. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The celebrated American novelist and short story writer Flannery O'Connor started keeping a handwritten prayer journal in 1946 at age 21 as she was starting out her writing career. And in her prayer journal, she expressed her struggles to become a great writer. She says, I want very much to succeed in the world with what I want to do. I am so discouraged about my work. Mediocrity is a hard word to apply to oneself, and yet it is impossible not to throw it at myself. I have nothing to be proud of yet. I am stupid, quite as stupid as the people I ridicule. Perhaps there are others in this room who might echo the same words. This frustration about being mediocre when we strive to become great. And it's interesting what Flannery O'Connor does in this journal is not just give expression to these frustrations, but she turns them into a prayer. She writes in one journal entry, Dear God, I cannot love thee the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and my self is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. What I am afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon, and that I will judge myself by the shadow that is nothing. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. She was very aware and conscious of her shortcomings in prayer. She writes this, I do not mean to deny the traditional prayers I have said all my life, but I have been saying them and not feeling them. My attention is always fugitive. I can feel a warmth of love beating me when I, write and when I think and write this to you. Please do not let the explanation of the psychologist about this make it turn suddenly cold. Flannery O'Connor started a prayer journal and kept it because I think she sensed at a deep level that prayer was what she most needed to be the person and writer that she longed to be. At the end of one entry, she cried out, Can't anyone teach me how to pray? This is the question that leads our series in the Lord's Prayer we're trying to answer. Luke 11, the disciples asked Jesus, well, Lord, would you teach us to pray? The same question. And Jesus teaches them the Lord's Prayer. There are many model prayers in Scripture, but this has to be the prayer of all prayers because it's taught by Jesus himself. And so there's no better way to learn how to pray than the Lord's Prayer. As I have suggested in this series, the Lord's Prayer is like scaffolding of a house or, or a framework of a house that we're meant to build on in our own prayers. Each phrase of the Lord's Prayer is like a heading of a whole area of prayer, and that's why we're considering the Lord's Prayer phrase by phrase. Last week, we considered the approach to prayer, our Father in heaven, and the prayer lesson was recollection. 
Recollection of who it is that we are praying to before we plunge into prayer. Just a moment of recollection. Because all communication is determined by the nature of the relationship that you have with the other person. So if they're a stranger, that limits what you can say to them. If they're a friend, that opens up a little more what you, what you can say. If they're a father, that opens up a lot more what you can say. And as we said last week, if you're talking to your father in heaven, imminent and transcendent, personal and omnipotent, it opens up profound possibilities for prayer. This is Jesus' first lesson in prayer, this recollection, just pausing to think about what we're doing and who it is we're approaching in prayer. And it is the doorway into vital prayer. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus' first petition. Uh, and it's interesting, when we typically think about our own prayers, like how do you, what, what's the first thing you pray about? When you go to God in prayer, what's the first thing you pray about? If you're like most people, we start with what is most immediate on our hearts, our own needs. We, we, it doesn't take much to, to pray about our job situations. We, we have a job, or we don't like it, or, or, or we need a job. We pray about our health uh, concerns. We pray about our kids and the circumstances they're, they're facing. And when you think about how we often start our prayers, it's interesting and it's striking how Jesus starts his prayer. Hallowed be your name. We don't normally pray this, I think. We don't even use this word. But it's interesting, in the Lord's Prayer, the first three petitions don't have anything to do with us. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. They all have to do with God, not us primarily. And, and Jesus it does get to our needs. He does pray in the Lord's Prayers, and we're, we're going to get there, our daily bread, our sins, our protection. So it's not wrong to pray for ourselves, but what Jesus is teaching us here is there is an order to prayer. And he is encouraging us to pray about God first before we pray about ourselves. He's, he's laying out before us that praise precedes petition. Adoration precedes asking. Jesus here is teaching us first to hallow God's name. We need to understand what he means by this. And I'd like to uh, ask three questions uh, this morning. What does that mean? What does it mean to hallow God's name? Why should we hallow God's name? And then how do we do it? So there's a what, there's a why, and there's a how. First, what does it mean to hallow God's name? It's interesting. I, uh, Jesus' words here are read in the NIV translation, the New International Version, which is a contemporary translation, obviously, which is aiming to take the ancient Greek and translate it into modern-day language. And yet it still uses the word hallow, which we hardly ever use in our everyday conversation. But I think that the translators recognize that it's hard to find another English word that communicates the idea here. The Greek word is the verbal form of the word holy. And when we hear the word holy, we usually think in terms of moral categories, and rightly so. We think when we hear the word holy, we think of sinlessness, or we think of moral purity, and that's right. But at root, the word holiness means separateness, set-apartness. So when God talks about his holy people, he's talking about his people who are set apart. When, he talk, when Scripture talks about a, a holy mountain, what makes it different is it's set apart by God for his purposes. God's holy priests are people that he's set apart for his service. In the description of the tabernacle, there are holy lampstands and holy utensils. And what makes them different from other lampstands and other utensils is that they are set apart for God's use. So anything that God declares as holy is set apart for him, set apart for his use. So then to hallow 
is to make holy, to set something apart for God. To hallow God's name means to make it holy, to set it apart. John Calvin says this, to sanctify the name of God means nothing else than to give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name, so that men may never think or speak of him but with the deepest veneration. So what it means to hallow God's name is to honor his name, to glorify it, to reverence it. And it doesn't just have to do with our language. Sometimes when we talk about uh, honoring God's name, we think it's just about like avoiding profanity that uses God's name, and it is that. But God's name represents his whole being. Someone's name is shorthand for the whole person. So when we hallow God's name, we're hallowing God himself. We're not asking God to make himself holy or more holy because he is already fully holy. He is morally pure and set apart. He is transcendent and holy above us. Now we're asking, not asking him to make himself holy or to become more holy. We're asking God to demonstrate his holiness, to be honored before all people and glorified and reverenced by more people. And by teaching us to pray this, Jesus is helping us to recognize that God is not hallowed in our world and our lives so frequently. Francis Schaeffer was a great Christian apologist in the 20th century, and he, I think, first came up with this idea that reality these days in our culture has, uh, has become like a two-story view of reality. And here's, here's the image that he puts. Think of a two-story house. The first floor of reality is the public realm, based on facts and science and public dialogue. The second floor, he says is the personal realm based on, on personal values and personal preferences. And he says that in our culture, what's happened is God has been relegated to the second floor, just the personal realm, the realm of personal values and personal preferences. And you see, when you do that, the effect is that God has become marginalized. If you limit God to the second floor only, you see, he's taken from public life. He has, therefore, seemingly nothing to do with science or business or law or medicine or the arts or the public square. The only place we give him to operate is the private realm, our private feelings, our private morality. You see, by this switch, mentally, limiting him to the second floor, he no longer is an objective reality. He is just a subjective feeling. And that's how also often... God is marginalized in our culture and made unimportant and ignored and reduced to a subjective, private idea. I think it's one way in our culture that God's name is not hallowed. Maybe it's like this. You know, sometimes when you have a sick child and you have company coming over and you don't want to cancel the day because you've, you've worked hard to find this day, you say to your child, I, I need you to stay upstairs, honey, and, and, and stay out of sight because we just don't want to get our, our company sick. And sometimes I think we say the same thing essentially to God. God, you have to stay upstairs for a bit. Company's coming over. I want you to stay up on the second floor out of sight. Or God, you know, I'm, I'm at work, so I just, I need you to stay in the second floor for, for a while. Or I'm at school, I need to stay, you to stay out of sight on the second floor, in public. I want you to stay private, God. This is just between you and me. Don't, don't make yourself seen. And that's how God's name is not hallowed. We hide him away. We relegate him to the second floor of our lives. We compartmentalize him and marginalize him and keep him as only a private, personal reality. 
Jesus is teaching us to pray that God's name would be hallowed, that he would be honored, not put away, but honored and glorified and made known. So secondly, we need to consider this question, why should we do this? Why should we hallow God's name? And on a basic level, C.S. Lewis, I think, identifies a question that maybe someone here is struggling with when we get to the area of praise and adoration. C.S. Lewis, in this great essay he entitles A Word About Praising, says this, We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. I mean, in plain language, we don't like the person who says, what I most want is to be told that I am good and great. We, we don't like people like that. So then the question, is this what God is doing when he calls us to hallow his name, when he calls us to praise his name? C.S. Lewis, I think, answers his own question as well as anyone I've read. He observes this when it comes to praise. He says the basic truth about praise is that our world rings with praise. Does it not? Praise happens as an overflow of enjoyment. So think about this with me. People praise their lovers. They praise their favorite band or their favorite actor, their favorite movie. People praise their favorite restaurant. And people praise their favorite sports team or, or this, this beautiful vista of the mountains that they saw on vacation. We praise it. Our, our world rings with praise because, C.S. Lewis says, Enjoyment overflows into praise. We praise and we call others to praise with us. We, we say we long for someone to be with us at the concert or at the restaurant or seeing that beautiful vista because we want to say to them, look, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? You've got to taste this. This is incredible. You have to listen to this. We naturally praise what we love and care about. We can't help it. Our enjoyment overflows into praise. So the call to praise God is a call to enjoy and love the most worthy and beautiful being in the entire universe, God himself. In the words of C.S. Lewis, praising God is simply a, a call to be awake, to have entered the real world, not to appreciate which is to have lost the greatest experience and in the end to have lost all. In the first petition, Jesus calls us not just to praise and hallow God's name, but to do it before anything else, to put a priority on this. And why is it? Why, why is it so important that the, the first thing we should do when we go before God is to pray, hallowed be your name? Why is that? Let me suggest a few reasons. I think hallowing God's name clarifies our love for God. So let me ask a searching question. Do you love God for himself? Or do you love him primarily for what he can do for you? Even if God offered no personal benefits or blessings for you, would you still love him? I once met a man who started coming to the church I pastored in Chicago years ago, and he uh, asked to make an appointment with me, and we met, and he said, my marriage is falling apart, and I need help. I need God's help. Would you pray for me? Would you pray with me? And so I said, of course. And so for the next few months, we, we prayed together, and I talked to him about his marriage, and unfortunately, after a few months, his marriage fell apart. And then he stopped coming to church. You see, because he wasn't really interested in God. He was just interested in what God could do for him in his marriage. And the minute God didn't do that, he said, goodbye, God. And asks us the question, why do we come to God? Do we only come to God for what he can do for us? 
Do we only come to God when we're in trouble? Or when we have a need? And when life is going smoothly, we don't pray. But when we're in trouble and when we have need, we pray. Maybe it's an indicator that we don't really love God. We love what God can do for us, or what we hope God can do for us. Do we praise? In our prayer life, do we praise God, or is it all just about petition and our needs? You see, it's possible that we don't really love God. We just love what he can do for us. When we hallow God's name, Jesus is saying, we're clarifying our love for him, not just what he can do for us. Hallowing God's name not only clarifies our love for God, it also makes us God-centered. Because if we're, in our prayers lives, a rush, in a rush to only pray about ourselves, that's all we pray about, it's possible that we are self-centered. That we're only trying to hallow our own name and not God's name. That God is just basically a means to our own end. And so by teaching us to hallow God's name, Jesus is teaching us to be God-centered, to put him first before our needs. Because we're made for this. This is the way we're designed to function. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? What is our purpose? And the answer is this, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We are made to be God-centered. That's how we're, that we're designed to function. Augustine, the church father in the fourth century, put it this way, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And if you know anything about Augustine, he didn't discover this by sitting in, in prayer in a room by himself. No, he went out into the world in search of pleasure. The pleasure. In every corner of the world, he searched for pleasure. In great learning, in great culture, in great sex. And he didn't find pleasure anywhere there until he came to God. At the end of his life, this is what he concluded. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And Jesus is inviting us to discover this same thing. When we're called to hallow God's name, it is a call to be God-centered in our perspectives. Praying, hallowed be your name, clarifies our love for God. It makes us God-centered, and it enables us to rightly pray for ourselves. If we don't hallow God's name first, it is difficult to rightly pray for ourselves, for our daily bread, for our forgiveness, for our deliverance. See, if we only pray our, about our daily bread, if that's the, the, the one and only thing we, we pray about, it's possible that we're really idolizing our daily bread. We don't really care about God. What is most important to us is our daily bread. In our, in our prayers, we're idolizing one of our petitions over God himself. That's possible. Sometimes if we don't really hallow God's name first, we run into problems when we are asking for forgiveness. I don't know if you've ever experienced this or know someone who said this. They, they commit this great sin and they ask for forgiveness, and they say, you know, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Have you ever said that or heard someone say that? Tim Keller gave me great insight into what is actually being said when, when you say, well, I can't forgive myself. I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. He says what that indicates is that there's something more important to you than God. God said he forgives you, but you don't, can't, can't forgive, forgive yourself because there's something you're making more important than God. Like, I, you know, God forgives me, but my parents could never forgive me, and my parents are, are really important, so I can't forgive myself. Or I know God forgives me, but, you know, my reputation is taking a blow, and I, I can't forgive myself because my reputation is so important. Or my personal standards have, have been broken, and I, I can't countenance that. And you see, you're lifting that up above God, so it's a problem of hallowing. 
if you've hallowed God and he says that you're forgiven, then you're forgiven. When we pray for protection against the evil one, but we still experience fear. Perhaps it's because there's something that we fear more than we fear God. It's a problem of howling. Something else is sitting in that central seat, and that's what we respect or fear more than God. Jesus is teaching us here why we should hallow God's name. It clarifies our love for God. It makes us God-centered, and it enables us to rightly pray for ourselves. When general managers of sports teams are trying and aiming to build a championship team, oftentimes the first step is to look for that star player to build around. Here's what GMs are are oftentimes doing. They they are looking for that generational talent. They are looking for that once-in-a-generation athlete with spectacular uh, skills and abilities that can lift the team when necessary and carry it on their backs, who can deliver in the clutch. And once they have that player, then what do they do? They then fill the, the team roster. They surround it with supporting role players. You know, it's kind of like um, Inter-Miami in the MLS. You know, they were the last player in the league until they signed Lionel Messi. And suddenly now they're championship contenders. I mean, it's a dream of every GM to find and sign that star player. And then hope they don't get injured, like Aaron Rodgers of the Jets, who got injured and is lost for the season after four snaps. You know, I was expressing my apologies to my friend who's this this great, huge Jets fan, and he said to me, yeah, yeah I know, it, it just underscores how the Jets are different from the gospel. He says, in the gospel, <laughs> suffering leads to perseverance, which leads to character, which leads to hope, but with the Jets, it's just suffering and perseverance and no hope at the end. <laughs> you say, why are we talking about the Jets this morning? It's this, because we are all the GM of our lives. And we are all trying to build a championship caliber life. And we're all looking for that star player to build around. That that one thing, that one person that can carry us when we need it. That can deliver in the clutch. Maybe it's the perfect job or the perfect career that we're searching at. That central thing. This can carry me. This can deliver in the clutch. Perhaps it's the perfect spouse. Or the perfect investment portfolio. That's the center thing I need because that, that can carry me. That can deliver in the clutch. Or, or maybe it's the perfect children. You know, I'll raise the perfect children and then they can take care of me in my old age. That's, that'll be perfect. We all have something, in other words, that we're putting at the center. In the language of the Lord's Prayer, we're all hallowing something. We're all adoring something. And we know what we hallow and adore by the order and content of our prayer. The thing we pray first and most about is what we're hallowing and adoring. We pray most about what we treasure the most. If we treasure our jobs, that's what we're always praying about because that's our treasure. If it's our kids, we're always praying about our kids because that's what we most treasure. You see, and that's why Jesus is calling us to hallow God's name because whatever we hallow, Whatever we most adore will run our lives. And if we find ourselves racked with worry or anxiety or fears, 
Perhaps it's a hallowing problem. Perhaps we're hallowing and adoring the wrong thing. We're, we're putting a supporting player in that star player role, and they can't carry, they can't deliver in the clutch. Because we are designed to have God at the center. The only one who can hold the center and carry us through life and deliver in the clutch. And then when you have God at the center, you have the supporting cast of a job and a spouse and investments and, and children, but God is the center. And if God's not the center, then life starts to fall apart. My friends, this is why we're called to hallow God's name. It's to, to put God at the center. So then thirdly, and briefly, how is God's name hallowed? What the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, question 101, says, what do we pray for in the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? The answer is this. In the first petition, which is, hallowed be thy name, we pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him in all that whereby he makes himself known and that he would dispose all things to his own glory. God's name is hallowed by his people. When we glorify God, that's how God's name is lifted up and hallowed. But then the problem is, how can God be hallowed by unholy people? Because if truth be told, we're sinful. We're sinful people. We don't center our lives on God. We center our lives on ourselves. We don't hallow God's name. We hallow our own name. And we rebel against God, whether actively shaking our fists against him or passively. We just ignore him. We just relegate him to the second floor and say, you know, God, you're just a subjective idea. We can't make ourselves holy. Martin Luther tried. He wore out his confessor. He took six hours a day to confess his sins and wore out his own confessor. He said, if ever a monk got to heaven by his own monkery, it was I. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. And thankfully, Martin Luther discovered the good news of the gospel, that God did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. No amount of monkery in the world will make us holy. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves through his own son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent into this world to die on the cross in our place as our substitute to pay the penalty of sins, our sins, that we might be forgiven our sins, justified, meaning counted righteous, and sanctified. And I don't just mean progressive sanctification, that God begins to go to work on you and little by little makes you more holy. No, there, there, is, a, there is something called definitive sanctification. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he wrote to them, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be his holy people. And you say, how in the world did, did, did Paul call the Corinthian church sanctified people? Because they weren't. They, were a pro they had big problems in that church. It, it was a very flawed church and very flawed people, and yet Paul says them to those who are sanctified in Jesus Christ. How? It's definitive sanctification. It's when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, there is something that happens definitively. There is a decisive break from the bondage to sin. doesn't mean we won't struggle with sin. But there is a decisive break to the bondage of sin. Sin is no longer our master. Jesus Christ is our master. We don't have to sin. We struggle with it, but we don't have to. There is something that decisively happens when we put our faith in Christ. We are set apart as God's holy people. We are called saints. Those who put their faith in Christ, who are still flawed people, are called saints in Jesus Christ. 
We are God's holy people in Jesus Christ, called to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is the call to hallow God's name. When I was in Memphis this past summer for our denomination's general assembly, I had a little extra time before I came back, and so I took the opportunity to visit the National Civil Rights Museum housed at the Lorraine Motel where Martin Luther King was shot and killed on that balcony. And they have preserved the room just as it was when he stayed there, where he breathed his last. Martin Luther King discovered a great cause for which he was willing to give his life. And as I walked through that museum, I I wrote down some of the quotes on the walls and, and from the exhibits that inspired me. Martin Luther King addressed a rally at Shiloh Baptist Church on December 15, 1961. And he said, don't stop now. Keep moving. Don't get weary. We will wear them down with our capacity to suffer. Ella Baker said, we want the world to know that we will no longer accept the inferior position of second-class citizenship. We are willing to go to jail, be ridiculed, spat upon, and even suffer physical violence to obtain first-class citizenship. Civil rights is the great cause for which Martin Luther King and his followers were willing to suffer hardship and even death. And here in this first petition, Jesus is giving us an even greater cause to live and die for, to glorify God, in whose image we are made, whose word provided the whole foundation for the civil rights movement. It was Martin Luther King quoting scripture that advance the civil rights movement, is glorifying the God who makes the things that we cherish possible, equality and justice and compassion. This is the greater cause that Jesus is calling us to live for, the glory of God. Jesus here is teaching us our purpose, not to live for ourselves, but for God. Not to live for our own name, but for God's name. Not to put ourselves at the center of life but to put God at the center of life. Jesus is teaching us our purpose. He's teaching us how to pray. See, what's the first thing you pray about? When you go to God this afternoon or this evening or tomorrow morning, what's the first thing you, you pray for? Jesus' second lesson of prayer is this. Before you get the petition, and petition is good, before you get the petition, try praising. And if you don't know where to start, start with this phrase. Just say, hallowed be your name, God. How would be your name? And then build off that. God, I want your name to be lifted up in my life. That's what I want to live for. I want you to be glorified, not me. In my life, Lord, would you be glorified? In this house, in my family, would you be glorified? In my job, in the way I do my job, would you be glorified? Build off that prayer. Hallowed be your name. Jesus is teaching us our purpose. He's teaching us how to pray. And then he's teaching us, I think, how to live. Hear the words of our response song today. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Here I am, all of me. Take my life, it's all for thee. Hallow God's name and build your life around the only one who can carry you and deliver in the clutch. And as C.S. Lewis says, you'll be awake. You'll be in the real world. You'll be alive. 
to the greatest one in the universe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want your name to be hallowed. Forgive us for the ways that we hallow our own name over yours. We see now that we are designed to center our lives not around ourselves or anything else, but around you. We want you to be glorified in our lives, in our church, in our community. Pray that you teach us how to do that. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.